0: From the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him, Jesus, in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. For you're not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went their way. I thought for a moment, just fleeting moment, to kind of uh, sensationalize this title of this sermon and call it God and the IRS. I thought that might be a little much. And tithing and taxes is sensational enough. Um, and I know that it is a long time until April the 15th, tax day, and I don't want to spread any premature gloom and doom. Somebody reminded me that, that April the 15th was not only tax day, that was the day the Titanic sunk. So there got to be an omen in there somewhere. It was also the day that, that Lincoln was assassinated. Somebody said, you may not agree with all the departments of the government, but you sure got to hand it to the IRS. And you do. That was a joke. <laughs> Whom death and taxes said one bloke will have with us always, but at least death doesn't get any worse. And I think it was Arthur Godfrey, the uh, voice of the radio airways of the 50s, who first made this statement. I'm proud to be an American, and therefore I'm proud to pay taxes. But actually, I believe I could be just as proud for half the cost. I want to give you some background of this text. It's necessary. The Pharisees are beginning to be greatly concerned about the rising popularity of Jesus. And they rightfully see Him as a threat to their theological orthodoxy. And so they've got to find some way to discredit Him. They want to paint Him as a charlatan and as a fraud so that the people who follow Him will leave Him. And his popularity in the polls will diminish. And they want to paint him as a revolutionary to the Romans. Somebody who's trying to start an insurrection and the Roman authorities will turn against him. And they must have thought that their ploy was perfect. They sent uh, some of their disciples to Jesus to trap him in a question And they begin with this high-sounding flattery. They say, Jesus, we know you're a great teacher. You're impartial. You tell the truth. Somebody reminds us that if somebody's patting you on the back, it may be that he's trying to determine where to stick the knife. And so they were patting Jesus on the back, but they were trying to find where they wanted to stick the dagger. And this was the dagger. We'll ask him, does he believe that we ought to pay a tax to Caesar? If he says yes to that question, he'll alienate most of the following that he has. For these Jews hated the Romans and they hated their tax system. And if he says yes, we need to pay these taxes, then most of his following will leave him. If he says no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, these guys should never be here in the first place, nobody needs to pay a tax then the Romans would come in, see him as a revolutionary and arrest him. It's a catch-22. And so when they pose this question, in the wisdom of heaven, Jesus answers the most frequently quoted verse in the Bible, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, it's not a matter of either or. It's not a matter of, Caesar or God, it's a matter of Caesar and God. Now, actually, most of us don't really have a problem with rendering to Caesar. We don't have a choice in the matter. A few years ago, a son of a congressman of the United States, uh, Congress, was, a, was tried and, 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 and convicted of income tax evasion. The judge was making his sentence speech, and he had no mercy. He was going to make an example of this. He was going to throw the book at him. And in his, his, senten- his sentencing speech, he said, our, in our tax system is based upon voluntary compliance. Let this be a signal to all the tax cheaters in the, in the country. The thing that always bothered me is, if, if taxes is voluntary, how could you cheat? You ever, you ever wondered about that? Voluntary compliance—you try that one on your IRS agent the next time you're audited. Well, I'm, I'm voluntarily decided not to do that. See how far that gets. the The fact is, it is not voluntary. And if you live on a place in a in a place where the government wants to build a new superlane highway. You better call the United Van Lines because you're getting ready to move. And you young men, if they decided to reenact the draft, pack your duffel bags because you're on your way for whatever Caesar wants, Caesar gets. And we don't have much of a problem with that. In fact, we are willing to pick up the tab of this government. I mean, within limits, of course. The problem is not, do we render to Caesar? For most of us, even though we might complain about our government and we might make jokes, make light, as I have this morning, of our government, the fact is we wouldn't trade it for any other government in the world. Our problem is not rendering to Caesar. Well, let me tell you something. Rendering to God is probably, for most of us, our greatest spiritual problem. A number of years ago, a man decided he would take a survey and ask why people drop out of church. He, he, he interviewed all these religious dropouts, these people who had just one day decided not to go to church anymore or just kind of drifted away from the church. And he asked them, Why have you people decided just to drop out and, and, and walk away from your commitment to God and the church? You know what the number one answer was? The number one answer was, We can't afford it. We go to church and we get all these requests for money and we just don't believe we can afford to do that anymore. I make a prediction this morning. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm probably right. My prediction is that for most of us, rendering to God will be a continual lower priority in our lives in the days ahead. My prediction is this that my commitment to render to God will be gradually shoved lower and lower and lower on the list of my priorities in the days that are coming. Now the reason why I can make that prediction with a great deal of confidence is twofold. One reason is because this is becoming an increasingly materialistic age and society. It's pretty hard to make the mortgage payment on that dream house and buy two new cars and, and all the toys and the gadgets that are available to us and still render to God, isn't it? It's kind of like the little boy who left home one Sunday morning to go to Sunday school and his mother gave him two quarters. One was to put in the offering envelope and the other was to buy an ice cream on the way home from church. On the way to church, Somehow one of the quarters slipped out of his hands, rolled into a drainage grate and was lost. And the little boy lifted his eyes to heaven sincerely and said, Well, Lord, there went your quarter. I mean, somewhere on the way to God, somewhere on our way to the Lord, that which is His has been lost in the cracks of a materialistic age. And the re- second reason why I can make this prediction with a great deal of confidence is that there is something intrinsically seductive about money. So that the more we have, the harder it is to give. And we have more than we've ever had before in the history of the human race. And the more we have, the harder it is to get to, to turn loose of it. And I heard about a boy, a young man, who went into business and he called his pastor and he said, I want to dedicate my business to God and I want to pledge one-tenth of my income to Him. He began to prosper. Maybe it was because he'd made that commitment, probably it was because he was a good businessman. He began to make a great deal of money. He decided he would make a commitment to give half of his income to the Lord and his business prospered to the point that that requirement was to give half of his income meant that he would be giving six figures of money to the Lord. And he called the pastor one day and said, I'd like for you to meet with me today in your study. I'd like for God, you and I to pray and ask God to release me from that commitment. And the pastor said, no, I'll not ask God to release you from that commitment, but I will ask him to, to shrink your income back down to a size where you can give again. There is something intrinsically seductive about money. So it's kind of like a drug. It has the ability to enslave us. Possessions do. And that's why Jesus spoke so much about stewardship. Not so he could warn us that to have things were bad, but to warn us that if we're not careful, things will own us and destroy us. Rockefeller had to discover that. He wrote the great American dream. At the age of 23, he became a millionaire. At the age of 50, he was the world's richest man. He was the only billionaire in his day. And even though he could have anything in the world he wanted... Because of the pressure and the stress that he was under, he got to a place where he couldn't digest food. He could have anything to eat, but all he could eat was crackers and sweet milk. He shriveled up to a human mummy. His friends said he never smiled. He couldn't sleep at night. And one night while he was tossing and turning on his bed, he said to himself, I'm going to break this enslavement. I'm going to get out of this trap. And he found life. The next morning, he began to give his possessions away. The Rockefeller Foundation was begun. He began to give money to hospitals and colleges and institutions and churches and missionaries. And this old man, who at the age of 53 was told by his doctor that he wouldn't live another year, lived to the ripe old age of 97. He found life. He broke the cycle, the enslavement the, of, of, of money, of things, of In the movie, Oh God, some of you saw that movie. In the movie, Oh God, it was put forth that the reason why God didn't give Adam and Eve clothes was because they'd want pockets. (laughs) I'm not sure, I know, that that, I believe that theology. But if, if he gave them clothes, they'd want pockets. And if they had pockets, they'd want them full all the time. Now, I don't know if I agree with that theology or not, but I do agree with this, and I hope you join me, that there is an intrinsically seductive power in things. Now, the point is this. The point is that sooner or later, we have to make a decision, and we have to answer an important question, and it's this. Is it God I worship Is the kingdom first for me? Is Jesus Christ really Lord? And if I can answer those questions correctly, God is really whom I worship. Jesus is Lord in my life and the kingdom I seek first. If I can answer those questions correctly then how I use my possessions and what I do with my time and my ability is an easy answer. I mean, that's an easy thing to decide once I get this other matter settled. Now, follow me. The best testimony I've ever heard on Christian stewardship, I heard given by a young single mother of two or three kids in the metroplex. She lived down around Dallas. And she said her husband divorced her and she was having a hard time just getting by. One Friday afternoon, her friend called her and said, in the morning, let's get our kids and go to the state fair. It was going on in Dallas at the time. And she said, the first thought that came to my mind, I can't afford that. I'm just barely making ends meet. And then she said to herself, well, it's not my children's fault that they don't have a daddy. And they have a right to live like other kids live. So she said, I said, okay, I'll do it. Come by in the morning, we'll go. And she said, we went to the state fair. We, went to, we rode Ferris wheels and ate foot-long hot dogs. And she said, well, I had it figured was that we spent about $25 each. And I just felt this tremendous guilt about that. And then she said to herself, no, I'm not going to feel guilty. It's not my children's fault that they don't have a daddy. And they have a right to live like every other kid lives. And the next morning, she was getting them ready for Sunday school. And she was a faithful and active member of one of the churches in the Metroplex. And she said, I did as I was always accustomed to doing. I gave them each a dime to put in their offering envelope. And then all of a sudden, it struck me. I'm teaching my children that fairs and ferris wheels and footlong hot dogs are more important to me than the father. And she said, "I made a commitment that day that I have never, I've never regretted. That even though I may continue to go to ferris wheels and fairs and foot dog, footlong hot dogs." I'm going to teach my children that God is the God we worship and that He is first in our priorities. I want them to know that right up front. Let me tell you something, mammon is the most Practiced The worship of mammon is the most practiced religion in our time. And some of our religious leaders have recently been found kissing the feet of this idol. And it's absolutely a deep conviction of mine that when Jesus Christ is Lord, then all of these other matters that relate to money and time just fit right into place. And we can give all kinds of excuses of rationale if we please. The fact is that if he's not first in our possessions, he's probably not first anywhere else. John Wesley found himself in a dilemma. He wanted to live a kind of an austere life, a life of really of uh, almost poverty. He... he, uh, Jesus Christ was Lord of his life and he determined to himself, now I'm not sure if this is true, you know, it needs to be for everybody, but he felt that that things, that possessions, would be a negative encumbrance to his ministry. And so he kept trying to give everything away. The amazing thing about it was that he was so good at writing and preaching that that he just kept getting rich. (laughs) And one day he wrote in his journal this, I want you to listen to this. I do not see how it is possible for any revival to continue. Religion must necessarily produce industry, and these cannot but produce riches. As riches increase, so will pride, anger, and the love of the world. Now let me tell you what he said. He said that when a person makes Jesus Lord of his life, he becomes a more responsible businessman. And when he becomes a more responsible businessman, he becomes more successful. And when he becomes more successful, he he, he becomes richer. And when he becomes richer, he finds it harder for him to to be committed. And what he was saying was that there is this constant tension that we live under in which we have to determine who is God and who is first and who is Lord. Now I think there are some incentives or implications that we may have forgotten. I want to mis- mention a couple of them, then we're out of here, that just kind of tie in what I'm trying to say. In a motivation for helping one to render to God, and I feel that's my responsibility to do, I think we need to remember a couple of things. One is that there is basic to giving the principle or precept of reciprocity. By that I mean that there is a precept that is forever incontrovertibly true, that there is in giving a receiving. Now I'm not about to try to tell you that if you give you're going to become rich. That will not preach in third world countries. And I'm not going to be one of those people who likes to say that If you give, you'll get back and you'll just get money and stuff. It's kind of like the lottery. You may not win the first time you try, but if you keep on trying, one of these days you'll hit the jackpot. I'm not going to tell you, that. I'm not saying that at all. But I cannot avoid the fact that Jesus said, give and it shall be given to you. Now, there is in the agriculture and physical world the law of the harvest that is also true in the spiritual world. The first law of the harvest is is that you reap what you sow. You sow love, you reap love. You sow hatred, you reap hatred. You sow anger, you reap anger. The second law of the harvest is is that you reap more than you sow. You sow one seed in the ground, it sprouts a, a a plant that has many seed on it. Jesus said, "Give, and it shall be given to you." Pressed down, shaken together, running over, so that there's not a single person here this morning who would not say, "I have been able to give more than I have received." It's just not possible. The third law of the harvest is is that you reap later than you sow, and by that I mean that the sowing, the receiving, may come many, many years after you sow, and it may come in spiritual ways, and I want to give you a couple of examples of it. Now listen carefully. George Truitt, when he was pastor in Dallas, First Baptist Church in Dallas, was preaching revival out in West Texas, near where I live, as a matter of fact, lived. And he said, after the 10, the 10 o'clock service one morning, the, one of the uh, wealthy rancher in this church said, Dr. Truett, I'd like for you to come with me out to my ranch. I want to have a little service of dedication, and I want to commit, co- co- surrender my possessions to God. And he said, We went out there, and it was over by the Cap Rock. He said, Everywhere we looked, you could see his, his property, his land, cattle and oil wells. And And he said, that dear man got out on his knees in the the ground, the dust, and he said, he prayed, he said, Lord, I want to commit what I have to you. And I'm committing it today, as well as my life, I want to commit to you. He said, he he finished his prayer with this strange conclusion. He said, and Lord, I want to surrender, I want to commit my rebellious son to you. Would you save him? And he said, that night in the revival service, that rebellious son wandered in the service and was saved. A number of years ago, a wealthy family from the north of England took a holiday up to Scotland and they had a little, they had a boy with them, their son, and one afternoon he decided he would take a little walk, he would explore, and he went on a little walk and he was walking around out in this meadow, this field, and he came upon an old swimming hole. And his boys would do, he, it was hot in the summertime, so he took off his clothes and jumped in. What happened later, he was not prepared to, ha- to happen. He was, his, he was sieged, seized with cramps. He couldn't swim. He was drowning. He began to scream and cry for help. In a field nearby was a farm boy working. He heard the cry for help and he ran and he, and he dove in the swimming hole and saved the drowning boy. Of course, the parents, the you know, wealthy family was grateful and they were you know, rejoicing in him saving their son. And so they were talking to him one one that afternoon. They said, young man, what, do you wanna, what are you going to be when you grow up? He said, well, I'm probably going to be a farmer. And the wealthy man said, Well, you don't sound too excited about it. You say, oh, I want to be a doctor. You want to be a doctor? He said, yes, I really do want to be a doctor. But he said, my parents can't afford to send me to college and med school. He said, that's it. He said, you just count it done. You go ahead and graduate from high school, and you prepare to go to college and med school, and every expense you incur will take care of. Years later, Winston Churchill became ill with pneumonia. He was dying. A call was sent out to William Fleming. He's the man who discovered penicillin. And he was called to ask to come to 10 Downing Street and administer this new drug to Winston Churchill or he would die. So William Fleming came and he administered penicillin to Winston Churchill and saved his life for the second time. For that boy who was drowning in that swimming hole was Winston Churchill and the farm boy who saved his life was William Fleming. And the principle of that and the truth of that is is that when somebody willingly, voluntarily sacrifices and gives somehow it just keeps coming back and coming back again and again. There is a living investment in giving. I think there's a second incentive I want to share with you. It's this. is an understanding that we are temporary stewards. And by the way, somebody said that the definition of that word is, I'm taking care of the boss's business till I get to the end of the line. We're temporary stewards of God's possessions. And ultimately, everything goes back to God and we're accountable to how we used it. I think I need to say it again. Sometimes I say in my Sunday school class, you guys look like a calf looking at a new gate. We're not sure that we are temporary stewards of God's possessions and ultimately we return what God has loaned us and we'll be accountable to how we, with regard to how we used it. Now I want you to notice the subtle lesson that's in this story. Jesus said to these men, Bring me a coin that you used to pay the poll tax. So they brought him a a denarius. It's equivalent to one day's wage. He said, Look, whose inscription is that on that coin? Whose picture is there? And they said, Caesar's? You know what he's saying? He's saying, Whose coin is that? It's Caesar's. Caesar, owned, this, we're not talking about a democracy here. We're talking about a dictatorship. And if Caesar wants his coins back, he just sent out a decree, bring every coin in, and you bring it in. I mean, we're talking about an autocratic dictatorship. And, and the little subtle message is this question I ask you. Whose inscription is on your life? I mean, in whose image are you created? God has his name on you. You're created in the image of God. You know what that means? It means that you belong to God. That means everything you have belongs to Him. And ultimately, we bring it all back to God. And we are accountable how we used it. That's the story of the Bible. Now, I don't think that if God has your possessions, He necessarily has you. But I am absolutely certain that God doesn't have you unless He has yours. And when He has you, He has yours. You've heard of Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali, the unprecedented three-time champion of the world... His face was on Sports Illustrated more than anybody in the history of sport. A man by the name of Gary Smith went to interview him not long ago. He's an old man now and in poor health. And he went to his house and Muhammad Ali asked him to go out to a barn which was near the house. He lives on a little farm. And he said he went inside this barn and all over the walls of this barn are pictures of Muhammad Ali when he floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee. Pictures and portraits and photographs and mementos of his championship. Picture of the knockout of George Foreman and the, and the mystery punch in the battle with Sonny Liston. And he even has a picture, a huge picture, holding up the belt after the thriller in Manila. And he said, he, he got to looking And all over those pictures were white streaks, bird droppings. And he said, he looked up and all in the rafters of that barn were pigeons. And he said, Muhammad Ali did did a strange thing, perhaps as a gesture of closure or perhaps as a statement of frustration. He went over and he took every one of the pictures and he turned them back so that they faced the wall. And then he walked to the door of the barn and he mumbled something so inaudible that Gary Smith had to ask him to say it again. So he said it again, just barely where Gary Smith could hear him. He said this, I own the world. It ain't nothing. Look now. What does it profit a man If he owns the world, it ain't nothing. And I heard about a preacher who was planning to preach on stewardship. And he was working with his song leader and organist about how to conclude the service. And he said, at the end of the service, I'm going to ask everybody who is willing to commit their life to tithe, To stand. He says, very important to me that I get all these people to stand and make that commitment. So he told his organist, he said, I want you to play some appropriate music for that. And she said, well, what would be appropriate music? He said, the national anthem. I suppose that a little more appropriate music would be this. I surrender all. All to thee I owe. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. The world ain't nothing. Supposing today were your last day on earth, the last mile of the journey you've trod. After all of your struggles, how much are you worth? How much could you take home to God? Don't count as possessions your silver and gold, but for tomorrow you leave them behind. And all that is yours to have and to hold are the blessings you've given mankind. Just what have you done as you've traveled along that was really and truly worthwhile? Do you feel you've done good and returned it for wrong? Could you look over your life? With a smile. Before I went into that early service, I asked God to help me not preach the sermon necessarily, but to give the right kind of invitation. And the invitation I gave in that early service is the invitation I feel led to give. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to ask, while nobody's looking, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I'm not going to ask you, you'll not be asked to come forward. What I am asking you to do is this. I want to ask those of you who are already committed to give at least the tithe of your income to the Lord. You're already doing that or you will make a commitment to begin doing that, I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Just stand. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You're doing it. You'll make a commitment to do it in the days ahead. Now would you be seated, please. Thank you. Our Father, I pray that You'll lead us to be and do what pleases You, to be obedient, for I ask in Jesus' name. Now here are the invitations, the same invitations that we have every Sunday. An invitation for you to receive Christ as your personal Savior. You might want to come today and say, I want to give Jesus my life. And I want Him to come into my life, be my Savior. Or you may want to come this morning and place your life in the fellowship of this congregation, this church. Because you feel God leading you to do that. Or perhaps you want to come today to rededicate yourself to Christ. The invitation concerning our possessions we've just done. Now, these invitations for you to follow follow up on as God leads you. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.